Museum of the Moving Image welcomes you to the Pinewood Dialogues Online, an archive of conversations with innovative creative figures in film, television, and digital media. Visit Museum of the Moving Image in New York City or online at www.movingimage.us. This is the Directors Guild Theater, and there's no better director around than uh, David Cronenberg. And here he is. Yes, I've been watching Vigo too much. I thought I could actually do what he does. <laughs> it's better if you're naked. <laughs> you mean I'm not? <laughs> this is just tattoos. Um, okay. Well, when we last saw you, um, this museum audience saw you uh, right when History of Violence was coming out. And that film was a big success, both commercially and critically. And I just want to ask you, um, as a way of segue into this film, what, um, how it came about that this was your next, next project and sort of what was opened up to you after that film? Well, uh, um, people sometimes get the impression that you can kind of pick and choose what movies you do and you're thinking of the arc of your career and now the musical comedy, you know. <laughs> and in fact, maybe I even would do that, but in fact it, it, it has more to do with what comes along, whether it comes from you or an adaptation or you see a newspaper or uh, article or your agent sends you a script. And then when you find something that you're interested in, as I was with Steve's script, even then it took about a year before it came back to me because money, uh, deals, timing, all kinds of things were not working out. And it's quite possible that I would have done another movie. Uh, there were several things that came, came by and I, I, I might well have been doing, talking to you now about some other movie, that musical comedy, for example, <laughs> uh, instead of this one. So when people say, well, this is kind of a matched pair with History of Violence, right. I can see the connections, but I had nothing to do with it in terms of willing it to happen that way. It's not as though I said, I must do a matched movie to History of Violence that's the flip side or something, or on the other side of the Atlantic, but also a gangster movie. You know, uh, That's the way it works. But it'll make a nice double feature at the drive-in. It done. totally would. It really, really would, if there were drive-ins. <laughs> and how did you come up, uh, to write the script? I mean, it has some similarities, of course, with Diddy, Dirty Pretty Things and its portrait of, of London and a side of London that we don't see often. Um, I think it, it's not just London. It's it, most big cities, New York, Toronto, any of those cities would... Has, thank you. Has um, the, the same industry is happening, the same problem is going on, which is the trafficking of, of human beings. And I think if you live in a city like London, I think it's, it's not only your duty to, to tell those stories, it's also why wouldn't you? Because that's where the real meat, the real drama is really happening, you know. So it was just the fact that this was obviously going on, that in, in suburbs of London, there are people who are living in slavery now, and that if that's your starting point, then you know that you've got real drama there. So. That was the reason. Okay, and then and and so what was it that um, is, was there anything in particular that drew you to this script and made you want to do it? As a film? Me? Yeah. You're asking me? Yeah. <laughs> uh, Steve uh, paid me a lot of money under the table, <laughs> and I'm very susceptible to bribery. <laughs> Likewise, Vigo, he can't get work, you know. So <laughs> I. 
Um, no, it, it was, uh, Toronto prides itself on being a multicultural city, and so does London. And that intrigued me, because it's, it's in opposition to sort of the American theory of the melting pot, where you come to America and you become an American, you give up a lot of your national, original identity. Uh, in, in London and Toronto, there's a theory that you can somehow come together and maintain that, your, your culture. Uh, and there are good and bad sides to both of those uh, concepts, really. So what you've got in, in London and in Steve's script is this kind of mini criminal globalization going on. And you, you couple that with uh, the rise of a very raw, primitive form of capitalism coming out of Eastern Europe now that the, the communism has fallen. Uh, you, you know, the combination is very volatile, very interesting. All of these cultures, you know, we have Chechens, Azerbaijanis, uh, Turks and Russians and so on. Um, but trying to work together, but at the same time they have these thousand-year-old enmities and hostilities, and uh, so they never trust each other. So it's a really rich texture, and, and, and of course Steve's uh, dialogue and characters were wonderful. And wasn't the, the, um, the poisoning of the spy, former spy, going on by, by Putin, ostensibly, well, um, we, we, going on at that time when you were... Our production this? did that. Okay. <laughs> because um, when we started, the, 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 the Russian mob in London was a very uh, obscure topic, and we thought there should be some way of... No, but in fact, that started to happen halfway through our shoot. And literally, half a block from my front door, uh, where I was renting an apartment in London, and Vigo's and Vincent Cassel as well, there was a building owned by the Russian oligarch Berezovsky, who has a big feud with uh, President Putin. And um, we walked by there every day. And suddenly there were cops in hazmat suits and forensic vans uh, finding traces of uh, polonium radiation there because Litvinenko had, had been there. So it was, we were very hot. We were radioactively hot, in fact. <laughs> Um, could you talk a bit about the process uh, of the collaboration or how, we, how the script developed, um, what was, say, added to it or changed? Mm. Or um, well, the great thing about working with David is that he has a, a hawk eye for things that won't work and also an instinct for you know, what would work. Um, so when we first sat down to discuss the script, there were elements of it that David instinctively knew would slow things down or it wouldn't work. So it was great to, and, and as a result of David's um, sure-handedness, the meetings were, didn't have to be long. It was sort of like, that, let's do that, so then I would go away and do it. But also, uh, David gives you the room to, to fix the problem as well, you know what I mean? So it's really, it, it's, it's an ideal um, situation. Yeah, I, f I found the same. I mean, uh, you can often have writers who are very protective of their material because it's theirs and, and no other reason, not necessarily because it works and you get a whole ego thing going on there. It can be quite messy. Um, but uh, Steve was not like that. In fact, he, 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 he was very excited to develop the script because it hadn't really gotten very far developed. It, it sort of had languished at BBC Films uh, for quite some time. In fact, you did, I think you wrote Dirty Pretty Things before it? Or? It, was, it was sort of consecutive. This, this came along, I, I started to write this just about when Dirty Pretty Things was, was being taken into production. Yeah. So that movie got made, you know, a couple of years ago, and, and this, uh, this script just was lying around. So it, it, 
it never got, you know, he never got a chance to get his hands on it and really start to work with it as though it was going to get made. Because once, once the production is there and you're saying, okay, we're making this movie, then things get intense and they get real. Could you talk a bit about, either of you talk about the, op the opening scenes are so concise and strong that you go from these, because um, you have, there's not actually a great number of violent scenes, so they make an impression. And you have this very violent opening, and then uh, this theme of birth is introduced, but birth itself is violent in the next, the next scene. So. I mean, in writing the opening scene, what I wanted to do was to take a very conventional gangster scenario, which is an execution in the barbershop, and then when having established that, then everything else should be not what you're expecting. So, you know, to go straight to birth, and, and the idea is of birth and death and renewal, and it's Christmas and all of that. I mean, I think those themes are there if people want to want to look for them, you know. The, the, the image of that baby in that second scene is so striking. What was that? Um, well, that's a fake <laughs> <special> baby. Effects, <laughs> <laughs> that's a silicone baby. Yeah. Um, I had one lying around, so I thought, <laughs> you know, I th well, everybody does, don't they? Uh, yeah, it was, uh, we, there was, uh, at one point we, we, we thought we would actually show the birth and I think that was in the script and we tried that a bit and then I really thought we didn't need to do that. I thought, uh, and the baby, it was a, a special effects baby and, and then added to that is a little bit of CG, a little computer work that you, the, just the lips moving and the eyes moving in a way that was subtle, too subtle to do mechanically, although the breathing was in fact mechanical. Uh, but it's not just the baby, it's the lighting and the angle of the shot and, this, and the makeup on the baby that makes it work so well. Um, another thing that's very striking, and this is on a second viewing of the, of the film, is the tone. You talked about um, having things that you don't expect. And um, there, is, there are more scenes of, of tenderness um, in this film than uh, maybe struck me on the first viewing. Um, example, the scene with the prostitutes after a very brutal scene. There's a very tender scene. Mm -hmm. And I just wonder if you could... Uh, maybe if either of you could talk about it. Well, I tried to get rid of all that. <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't manage to expunge every moment of tenderness. I tried. <laughs> My analysis uh, of Steve, as he's sitting here so I can... Uh, no, I think he falls in love with his, his characters and he has great affection for them, which is one of the great things about the script. And that goes for even the nasty characters. Uh, and then it's just a question of not going too far with that. You know, you want to make sure that you don't go over into sentimentality, but you, at the same time, want to express this affection that you have for even f very flawed human beings because they are human beings. Yeah, I mean, I think that, that it's the fact that there are several characters who um, sort of deliberately and expressly and innately do not show emotion, so that when they do show some emotion, I think it has... A greater effect. And I think, in particular, Kirill, who I mean, I am sort of fond of that character because he's so out of control. And I think you don't forgive him for what he does, but part of you understands what he does and why he does it. Mm -hmm. um, uh, just before opening it up to the audience, I'll ask about um, the scene that's already become legendary in a way, um, which I guess was just a line or two in the script, the fight scene in, in the sauna. Um, so could you talk, I guess if both of you could talk, what you, what you had in mind in, in writing it, what you had envisioned, and then how that... I mean, I think it's a, it's a masterpiece. I think it's fantastic. And uh, you're quite right. I mean, basically, the, the, the idea in, in the script is that here is someone who is naked and therefore vulnerable, who proves to us that the thing that this character is 
really best at and really well equipped for is this sort of violence. So that, uh, but then, you know, the execution of it is just amazing. I mean, in this original script, he never talked about the towel, you know? <laughs> Where did it go? Was it on the guy or was it not? I mean, he, so I had, we had to figure that out, Vigo and I. <laughs> you have the worst continuity person. And, you know, really? Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, it was a pretty, it was not too detailed a script, and in fact, we did change a few things, I think. I think, I think uh, in the original script, Steve, once again, that tenderness that I so hate. Um, <laughs> actually, the Chechens were not killed. You recall, you didn't have them dead, and I said, they've got to be dead because they're not going to stop coming after them. So you can't just punch them and make them unconscious. They've got to be dead. And there were a few other things like that. But mostly it was had to be worked out in great detail. Um, yeah. Really, when you write a script, it's, it is broad strokes mostly because to put in all the detail that it takes to actually make a movie uh, would take an 800-page script. You know, this, it's, it, um, a script is not even a blueprint because you can build a house from a blueprint, but you can't build a movie from a, from a script in the same sense. So Steve, wily old character that he is, knows that there's going to be a crew of 150 people very enthusiastic doing research. You know, what kind of shoes does this gangster wear? What socks? What car does he drive? What, you know, what... Um, uh, how, what was it? What kind of sunglasses, and and where will the tattoos all be? You know, and what will they represent? None of that. You know, it would just be too laborious to read. But when you're making the movie, you have to figure all that stuff. Figure all of that out. And I gather Vigo was quite into researching this question about tattoos, which was so important. Yeah, Vigo is uh, an amazing collaborator. Uh, with him, I like to say you don't just get a solo violin; you get a whole orchestra. Um, he does his own research. It's, he does it in the sweetest, most gentle way because it's really for him, but he shares it. And if you don't want, you don't want to look at it, he doesn't mind. Then um, he sent me at a certain point a book called Russian Criminal Tattoo, which was phenomenal. I mean, it was an amazing book. Um, which, and then a, and also a documentary made by a, a friend of his named Alex Lambert called The Mark of Cain, which was shot in maximum security Russian prisons where you have 35 prisoners in a cell made for four. They literally cannot all sit down at the same time, so they have to take turns sitting down. Uh, and they all talked about their tattoos and this, uh, this subculture of tattooing in Russian prison that goes back to czarist days, predates the Soviet Union by a long way, and has evolved as a kind of secret society um, and still exists now, although it's becoming a bit passe once again in the face of the new capitalism uh, happening. And um, uh, I sent this to Steve because I said, this is mind-boggling. You know, he had, of course, alluded to tattoos, and, uh, but not ever gotten into, it, into, into the detail that we ended up with. And I said, you're going to, no writer can resist this kind of stuff. It's just too rich. You know, we're, we're going to, when, when we do another rewrite, we, you're going to want to incorporate this in, into the film in a huge way. Uh, just one other detail while, while it's on my mind. We're talking about physical details. Uh, Anna's character, the fact that she rides motorcycles seems to be a really important detail. It's, it says something about her character being kind of an... Um, and I know you were very interested in motorcycles. Mm. But, but, but could you... But where well, I mean, I, what I wanted was that the, the presence or non-presence of her father had recently died. He's, um, 
the motorbike belonged to him, so it's also a Russian motorbike. So we visually, even if we forget that detail, visually there is some connection between her and her father there, so that when she meets Semyon, we understand that she's sort of looking for, a, for that sort of father figure. Okay, let's open it up. Um, raise your hand, and I'll, I'll repeat questions just so we can um, everybody can hear. Okay, over here. This sounds like an unusually high amount of collaboration um, with the scriptwriter after the script is written and while you're in production. Um, that's pretty normal, I think, and normal for me. Certainly, I did even more of that on History of Violence. Um, it, truthfully, it would be great to have a script arrive that was so perfect you didn't want to touch one thing in it and just go make it. It's very rare, though, that that happens. And part of the reason is that there is a tendency now, and I think it's been there for a long time, that producers or studios don't really want to get into paying for the second draft until they have a director on board because directors have a habit of rambunctiously changing everything and not liking stuff. and. And, and it's not worth doing a, a draft to a producer's specification because basically the producers don't really, they actually often don't know how to read a script really well. You know, they don't really understand what it needs to make it work on screen. Uh, they just have an instinct that it could be good. So I think that's the reason, uh, it's not really that unusual that a director should get very involved in, in, um, in the rewriting of a, of a screenplay. And that takes nothing away from what the screenwriter is doing. The, the, the more that the screenwriter can do, the happier that I am because I'm very, very lazy. <laughs> <laughs> and are you thinking of the direct, who's going to be directing this when, when you're writing it? And was he in the top, top uh, no, I mean, 10 of the list? I mean, truthfully, he, he wasn't thinking of me <laughs> at all. <laughs> Guaranteed. <laughs> I mean, truthfully, you write the script because you write it on behalf of your characters, I think. And, um, you know, it's great news when someone comes along um, who, who's, who's going to because when there's a director's on board, that's when you know that you're probably going to go into production quite soon. Yeah. Okay. Over here. Yeah, go ahead. Were there many deleted scenes? Were there many scenes that you guys filmed that, that didn't make it in? No. There were a couple. There were some. Um, I, one of the things that Steve will tell you is that I love short scripts and that most of my glee and pleasure comes from cutting, which you might imagine. <laughs> I think of that scene where he's cutting off the fingers and I say, yeah, the guy will be, he'll weigh less. <laughs> it's one way of losing weight. Um, oh, you can still buy the DVD, don't you? Uh, but no, you will not see these scenes on the DVD because I don't like doing that. I did that with one scene in History of Violence. That's the first time I, they're deleted because I don't like them. <laughs> um, not because, and, and really often not because of a performance or, or whatever, but just because once they don't work, uh, I don't, they're gone, you know, they're out of my head and I don't see why you should see them. Any more, any more than you want to read the original draft of Steve's script, do you? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll tell you that um, the other reason is that those scenes don't get developed either. They're like the first draft. You know, often you, I mean, I edited this movie in three weeks. So I, I, don't, I don't spend a lot of time normally if, this, if the movie's working. And if, I'm very concise on, 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 on set. You know, I don't do storyboards, but I, I, I'm pretty precise. And um, 
so there's not a lot. I, I'd love to get to the point where I've cut the script so tightly that there are no deleted scenes, that we shoot everything and it's needed. I haven't quite achieved that yet. But, uh, but there were a couple of scenes that uh, they don't get mixed, you know, you don't, they don't get refined because I cut them very early in the, in the editing process. So they're not finished. And, who I, and I don't have the heart to finish them to the extent that they, I could present them to you on the DVD as finished scenes the way they would have been if they'd been in the movie. So I, that's my feeling. <laughs> Did I have to go back go to back film? Uh, you mean reshoots kind of thing? Yeah. No, I think there was, one of, no, not really, no. He knows what he's doing, really, trust me. <laughs> okay, another question, over here. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> how long did it take, to, how long did the filming take and, and how long? did the fight scene take yeah. to film? It was a 53-day shoot, so it was basically 10 weeks plus a little bit. Um, the fight scene took about two days to shoot. Uh, Vigo, having had experience doing other fight scenes on other movies, said that, that normally would, something like that would take a week. Um, and he was very glad that it didn't because he was getting very bruised and beaten up. You know, there was a time when, I mean, obviously he can't wear pads, you know, he's naked. So uh, it, it meant that, um, I mean, the special effects makeup man, Stéphane Dupuis, he's a wonderful, he's brilliant, said to me, you know, David, I'm spending more time covering up Vigo's bruises than I am putting uh, the tattoos on every day. And I said, I just don't tell me that. I don't want to know. Um, but... Um, it takes a lot of preparation though. Though I don't do storyboards and though I love to come on the set not knowing what I'm gonna do because I want the spontaneity uh, of everybody to be involved. And speaking of collaboration, I want the collaboration of everybody on the set. You know, I have monitors everywhere. Some directors are very possessive about the image. They don't want other people to have the image and know what they're shooting. I want it open to the whole crew. I want everybody to know what's going on, including the actors. If they wanna look at it, I'll play it back for them. So that's that kind of trust and transparency that's there on the set, which allows you to do a scene like that with a major actor. And uh, also um, uh, the preparation that goes into it with the designing of the set with Carol Spear, who's a set designer I've worked with for 30 years, uh, and the, the working out of the choreography with the stunt coordinator and the actors. And it just it's a lot of preparation. So we knew exactly what the fight scene was going to be as far as you can know without actually shooting it. Because once you start to shoot it, everything changes, which is why I don't do storyboards. Everything changes, and I like that. But there, it really just took two days. Is there discussion about the thematic elements of the film? And what the, as an example, it, it occurred to me watching that fight scene that it has something to do with the idea of birth. There's a lot about birth and rebirth in the film, and he has just talked in previous scene about being, being dead, you know, being um, dead, and, and that scene is sort of a rebirth. And, and, and people have talked about how the film has elements and thematic relationship to your other work, but how does that manifest itself in terms of how you work on the set? When you're well, I, Steve is twitching. I think, it <laughs> means, I think it means he wants to say something. <laughs> no, I, mean, I, I, I hope that people do. It, it's sort of not essential that people get the themes, I don't think, to enjoy the film. But there are themes of um, rebirth and resurrection yeah. all the way through, I think. Yeah. Um, and also violence as a 
as, as destructive and violent as creative. And, you know, I think those images and those themes are there. But I do think even if you're not consciously aware of them, you feel their energy, the, the energy mm -hmm. of those ideas in there, I think. Yeah, somebody actually came up with a very interesting religious interpretation of the whole movie with the baby being Moses and the bulrushes. Honest yeah. to God, I'm serious. And, and, you know, it was convincing. <laughs> I'm convinced. I've made a religious epic. Oh, my God. I loved Ben-Hur. Um, okay. But, uh, let me, but, okay. but the, um, the truth is that the, uh, even as you cannot photograph an abstract concept and an actor cannot act the role of an abstract concept, I, as a director, cannot direct an abstract concept, you know, I, and I'm talking about themes here. You can't really, that doesn't help you creatively do anything, even though when the, when the film works, it does evoke these things and provoke them in the, in the minds of the audience, and that makes it potent and interesting and makes for inter interconnections and stuff. But basically, when you're making the movie, it's really detail by detail, shot by shot, Although, although it's very plastic and sculptural for me, making movies. It's got a lot to do with space and three dimensions and moving through space and stuff. And at that point, you, and no more than a, a sculptor can really think of the, the themes of what he's doing. You're, you're working with stone or whatever it is, and you're trying to get the chisel to work, and, and that's, that's how it feels. It seems like there was a lot of emphasis on, on intimate exchanges between characters. Was that, was that a conscious thing? Well, it, it was written that way. It's yeah. a very intimate film, really. And, um, and also, I think the claustrophobia of, you know, what we were talking about, the multiculturalism, everybody being jammed together and having to figure out a way to, to work together, even if it's a criminal enterprise. Right, I, I, what I wanted to get in there is that the, there are a lot of secrets. There are a lot of people with two lives. There are a lot of moments when secrets are shared or when we can see that secrets are not being shared in the normal way. So, yeah, I mean, that, that intimacy between characters who are desperately trying not to show their feelings, I think, is important, and that causes the tension, I think. And, 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 and knives are intimate. You know, more so mu than much guns. more intimate more than guns. And, and yeah. Steve's script, there were no guns. And in London, there are a lot of guns. I mean, in England now, there used to be a time when the Bobbies famously, the police didn't carry guns, but that's, that's long gone. But I like that element of Steve's script because it meant forced intimacy. I mean, if you're going to kill somebody with a short little curvy knife, uh, that's an intimate act. It's, it's got a strange, perverse eroticism about it, especially if he's naked in a steam bath, of course. But there is an, um, an underlying sexual sexual the sexual undercurrent and a homoerotic undercurrent which perhaps you you are not working out consciously what you want to do with it but it seems to be there throughout the film there is <laughs> well we could read i could be reading into it no of course there is yeah <laughs> and that is steve's basic repressed homosexuality coming up <laughs> but, i'll show um, you my tattoos <laughs> yeah well it, it it starts with it starts with Kirill, the character of Kirill, you know, who is basically really in love with Nikolai and is a gangster who's gay, who 
could not possibly admit that even to himself because that's like a death sentence if in, in that milieu. So, uh, and Nikolai, for his own reasons, and at first we think it's because maybe he just wants to use Kirill to rise in the mob, uh, and then later we realize he has other reasons for doing it, but he, he flirts with him, he manipulates him, he uses that love and that, that sort of repressed homosexuality for his own purposes. So that, that's the basis of that, and then it comes out also in the, in the steam bath scene and, and so on. Anything up in the back? I'm not calling the balcony. All the way back there, up in the balcony. Have you always had this kind of open collaboration on the set, or has that evolved more over time? Um, well, the first movie I did, um, it was called Shivers, and it was shot in 15 days, and I, you know, I had always had... Uh, I think the collaboration with the actors came later, because in that first movie, it was like the actors were the bull, bulls in your china shop, you know? And the movie was the China shop because I had such a tight schedule that it, if, a, if, a, if an actor said, why don't I lie down over there instead of saying the line by the window? And I go, no, no, we can't light over there. We got the lights are over there. And I got 10 minutes to shoot this. Then we got to kill the security guard and crash the car. <laughs> and so I didn't realize, though, that you could just say that to an actor. And then he would find some way to make what you had to do interesting for him and so it took me maybe three quarters of that movie to realize that in fact you didn't have to think that way about your actors and that they could be collaborators but really I think uh, um, one of the, th the only things that I can say to a young director as advice because everything's changed so much since I started is that you you must invent your own version of being a director there are no rules all of the mythology that your teachers gives you is just mythology, and it, you don't have to be like von Sternberg, you know, and you don't have to be like, there's no one that you have to be like. There are many ways to be a director, and it has to come from you and your own temperament. There's no point. I would be terrible yelling at actors. I'm not good at that, you know, so uh, I don't think that that works anyway, and the actors agree with me, but nonetheless, um, <laughs> well, there's a great, you know, there are some directors who buy the whole, you must humiliate everybody and you must torture them and you must, you know, to get good stuff. Um, I don't find that to be the case and I've never had any reason to think uh, any way differently. But, um, so yeah, and in short, yes, I've always had a very open and collaborative set and uh, once monitors came in, uh, I immediately felt you know, that, uh, that the idea that you must not show your actors, you mustn't let your actors see themselves because they will, they'll freak out, you know, they'll, they won't like what they've done and then want to change it, they'll want to reshoot it and then it'll take a lot of time and so on and so on. Um, and I suppose if you had a really neurotic actor of a certain kind, that, that could happen, but I've never had that be the case. I've, mostly actors who don't like to see themselves while they act, they just, they just automatically just don't look. It's very straightforward. Was it true that you and Vigo were both re each reading Dostoevsky? Um, yes, doesn't that sound pretentious? 
<laughs> but it's totally true. I, 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 w I thought, okay, what, you know, Russianness. Okay, we've got to get into Russianness. How do we do that? Well, Dostoevsky, he's Russian. I'll read him. And I just happen to have the latest translation of The Possessed, which in the new translation is called Demons. This is the Pavir and Vorkonsky, you know, series of, and I have a lot of those new translations. And I started to read Demons, and I thought, my God, this is just, this is, this is sort of our movie, in a way, you know, um, anticipating it, secret societies and, and revolution and crime and all that great Dostoevsky and stuff. And so I phoned Vigo and I said, Vigo, you know, you really should read this because, and, and don't read the old translation, don't read Constant Garner, this is really much better, much rawer and cruder and so on. He said, I just finished it. <laughs> so we were totally in sync. And, 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 you know, it's not research in the sort of traditional sense, but it's just we wanted to get into the soul of Russianness, and for each for our own reasons. Okay, down here. Go ahead, you. Vigo, okay, he's very good in these fight scenes. And did he have? Did he bring fighting experience before history of violence, or is he? No, <laughs> I had to teach him everything. <laughs> in fact, we did for history. We did look at. I did find uh, on the net some uh, DVDs that teach you how to kill. And so, don't mess with me. That's all I'm saying. And because um, sometimes it's a reflex, I can't help it. Um, but we did look at those because we thought that that character would have learned to fight on the streets of Philadelphia and that would not be military training or anything else, it would be street fighting. And that's what we base that on. Um, whereas for this movie, we felt that he would have some military training, probably. KGB, Spetsnaz, we don't know, special forces. And in fact, for each of those characters in the steam uh, bath scene, we, we assigned a kind of fighting to, to that character because they would really have learned it from different places. And in, in a way it helped them to, you know, you, you, the way you fight is also an, ex way an, uh, an expression of character and your background. And um, so it was basically very worked out choreography for a specific reason, not coming from Vigo's background, although God knows, you know. But, um, uh, he has that scar here, you know, but um, uh, but he's very athletic, and it would have been very difficult, obviously, to shoot a scene like that with an actor who couldn't really do that. Um, stunt coordinators who help you work out the scene love working with actors, but because they come up with unusual things, and stunt guys have a stunt guy mentality, and that's usually a very you know restricted range of things that they would come up with. Uh, but sometimes you have to block the scene out with stunt people and then just show the actors and just let them do whatever they can. But in this case, all three guys, I mean, the big Chechen is actually a Turkish Cypriot who was 47-0 and 0 in his amateur boxing career. And the other guy was a Georgian who had, had, was, was, had been in the military. So they, they were very able to do this on their own. But once again, it, it, it basically is choreography that's created dramatically. But of course, what's powerful about Vigo's performance is um, the subtlety and, and what he does when he's still, when he's not 
fighting, the, the kind of little smirk he gets. And um, there's so much ambi amb you know, ambiguity about how you read him, and you're always trying to, as you're watching the film, trying to figure him out and read him. Well, he, he did go to Russia on his own, and um, uh, the, the, some people were horrified. They said, no, no, you can't do that. You have to have a translator, and you have to have a guide with you and stuff. But he went to Moscow and St. Petersburg, and then he went to Yekaterinburg, which is in Siberia, which is where we figured this character would come from. Bec and he just went alone. Um, because if you go as a celebrity, not, and Vigo never does that anyway, I can tell you, but you can't really observe people. Anonymity is really important for an artist. You need to be anonymous. You need to be able to observe without being observed. If, if the people are looking at you, then you can't really see them. And um, so he was driving a car, you know, being chased by farm dogs in Siberia <laughs> and all of that stuff. And it was all to see the whole, there's the kind of weight of a thousand years of depression, <laughs> Russian depression, uh, to see the way they held themselves, the way they hid themselves, the way they stayed aloof. How did they do that? And, and how did they speak? And he saw all of that. And, and could you talk about your, your own research with, within London, how you... Yeah, I, the, the character of... Um, Semyon is based on a, a real person, which is one of the first things that sort of prompted me to, to start writing, was someone who, even though he's involved in organised crime, used to do Pushkin readings. You know, he was really uh, quite intellectual, but also had that fantastic hospitality and warmth, but was also quite mournful mm. and regretful. You know, and there's that lovely sort of darkness about certain... Um, Russian characters and that certain Russian temperament, which I think is a great sort of environment for this kind of, yeah. of story to develop. Uh, the Howard Shore's credit, when it came up, got applause, and the music, as you're talking about that tone, it, it, so much is captured in the music. I just wonder if you'd say... I what? hate when that happens. <laughs> <laughs> no, when, they when they're applauding other people. No. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Um... <laughs> No, Howard is, you know, we grew up in Toronto. Oh, you were the one hissing in the background. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was singing. <laughs> That's the way I sing. Um, no, Howard and I grew up together in Toronto, and he's done almost every movie, almost every movie that I've done. And um, he's just uh, so sensitive, you know, to... We, uh, analyzing the way music is usually used in movies, it's there to exaggerate or support the tone that's already in the scene you know so if it's a sad scene you get really sad music if it's a, an action scene you get action music and um, often that betrays an insecurity of the filmmakers who feel it's not punching enough it's not giving you what should be there so you you, you know wall-to-wall -wall music perhaps uh, but but the, the kind of music that we like and that I asked for is music that adds a whole other layer of meaning and emotion that's not necessarily in the scene itself or is only a subtle thing in the scene. And um, the, the violin, the voice of the violin was so beautiful. And there was a wonderful uh, English-Italian woman who played that violin for us in the, in the movie. And it's just, just so emotional and so wonderful. But, um, you know, you say, okay, it's Russian. So there's got to be balalaikas, right? Well, we do have balalaikas, <laughs> but it would be so easy to be kitschy and just do a Russian pastiche. Uh, Howard managed to find the soul of Russianness without doing a, a kind of kitschy version of Russia. 
And um, it's so subtle what he does and so beautiful. Yeah. There's just time for a few more. Back there, standing. Okay, well, <laughs> is three weeks a long time to edit, and, and what kind of editing equipment do you use? I guess he wants to get the same machine. Uh, and, um, uh, and then what, at what point do you let the film go and let it? Well, uh, three weeks is ferociously short. It shocks all other directors, and they hate that I say that because then their producers will expect them to not do the six months of editing that they want to do. Uh, no, I think you normally in your contract, in a DGA contract, in fact, I think it's 14 weeks that you get. Um, I think Marty Scorsese spent a year doing The Departed, I think. Um, it, it really varies, but, but uh, there are standards, you know, standard contracts and stuff. And no, three weeks is ferociously short. Um, I, I did, we did refine it after that, you know, when we sort of screened it for friends and things, and there were little things, but the structure, you know, the, the, the deleted scenes and uh, the basic shape of it, I mean, I, let's put it this way. In three weeks, I said, okay, that's my director's cut. I'm willing to show it to my producers and to my to focus distributors. And uh, so that means that I'm confident that that's pretty much the movie. And I'm, I'm open to feedback at that point. But usually directors are pretty reluctant to do, to, to do that until they've, you know, they're pretty confident they've got what they need. And um, we added on Avid. Uh, I love electronic editing. People who say you should go back to film are insane. You know, forget it. Because with with uh, electronic editing, well, for me, it's like word processing. I couldn't wait f to get rid of typewriters, even though if you saw Naked Lunch, you know I have affection for typewriters. But um, uh, because it works the way your mind works, which is non-linear. That is to say, you jump around and you and you can do that with with electronic editing. So I would never. I mean, film editing is pretty much dead. I think Spielberg still does, does it, but that's, you know, that's him. Um, but, um, and what else? Oh, when do you want to, when do you let it go? Well, you, you let it go, I, I don't find that very difficult. I mean, by the time you go into the sound mix, any cuts that you make are, are may mean a lot of work for a lot of people because you have a hundred soundtracks and if you make one frame change then they have to change all hundred tracks. Of course it's easier because they're all digital and electronic too. But it's a, so by the time you go into the sound mix you, you should pretty much be prepared to say that's the cut. And are you seeing cuts of the film? I mean when do you see the film? Um, when, when Davey's done the... I haven't let him see it yet, actually. <laughs> yeah, exactly. What happens at That's it? why you're Soon, home. soon. No, I mean, the, but the process of the, of the edit is, um, takes place and then um, a version is shown. But, I mean, for me, interestingly, the first time of seeing anything is horrifying. It really is. It's just, it's just weird. And it's not... And at that point, you don't know if this is any good or not. And, and you just have to wait and then you finally get to understand how it looks. Is there anything you uh, never told me that. You know? <laughs> <laughs> he told me it was great. Yeah. <laughs> okay, right down here. We'll take one more after that. Yeah.
perspective. So you've had an interest in violence, terror, sexuality, sensuality throughout all your films, and what keeps bringing you back to that? Um, well, <laughs> isn't everybody? <laughs> uh, yeah, I, well, I, I, can, I can tell you that, it, first of all, it's intuitive and instinctive, and then gradually as you get older and you start to observe yourself, you come to some understanding, and I think it's, uh, I, could, uh, I can almost say it's a philosophy now. Um, for me, the first fact of human existence is the human body. I'm an atheist. I, I'm, I don't believe in an afterlife. I think that if you kill someone, that's a, an act of absolute destruction. So there's no saying, well, but he's in heaven. It's okay with the 72 virgins, you know. And, um, and that there, or that's karmic recycling and he'll come back as a fish or something. So I, I think that I take it, so I take violence very seriously because when we talk about violence, we're talking about the destruction of a human body. And, this, and therefore of a unique human being, by my way of figuring. So you read about statistics, 5,000 people die today, here and there. It's really, I take it seriously, it's very deep. I want it to be, to have its weight that I think it deserves. And likewise, then, if you're thinking of the body, which so much of culture, uh, religion, art, um, politics, uh, tends to Hide, you know, to the importance of the human body is 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 veiled by all of those things. If I unveil that, then of course sexuality is obviously a hugely important thing, and uh, sensuality. I mean, when you talk about senses, sensuality, you're talking about the body. So, to me, that's therefore, as an artist, drawn to what is most primal, and potent, and profound. That means those things to me, that's, that's the way I see it. Okay, well, we'll end on that grand philosophical note. Um, I want to thank all of you. The film, film opens tomorrow, and uh, thank you so much for being here. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. The Pinewood Dialogues at Museum of the Moving Image are made possible by generous support from the Pannonia Foundation. To learn more about the museum, visit www.movingimage.us.